Okay, so in Romans chapter 7 this morning, we find ourselves in kind of a difficult chapter. Romans is a very, uh, it's a very technical book, and Paul's writing to this group of people he's never met before. But because he's writing to a group of people that he doesn't necessarily know personally, he wants to make sure to hit every little detail about what he would tell someone if he had all the time in the world to explain it to them. And so he's writing this letter to these Roman believers. They're in the city of Rome, one of the biggest cities in the world at the time. And they're meeting together in churches that are basically people's homes. And he's writing to them so he can impart to them some spiritual gift. The gift that God's given him is teaching. And so he's teaching them the things that, just the basic elements of the Christian faith. So last week we were in Romans chapter 6 and Paul was explaining to them you know, they, they had spent an entire chat. He, he answered a question that he assumed that they would have as Christians. He said, so if God saved us by faith, and it's not anything that we can earn or deserve, then what's to say that we can't just go on living a lifestyle of sin? What's to say that we can't just continue so that God's grace would abound over our lives? Why not? What's the big deal? If His grace can save us to the uttermost... Those who come from the gutter most, someone has said, then why not continue in the gutter? And he said, Paul answering his own uh, rhetorical question, he responded by saying, well, how can you continue to live in sin if you've been dead to sin? You've been put to death on the cross through the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been forgiven. Why would you continue on in a lifestyle of sin? And so, you know, Paul's response is, Perish the thought. God forbid that we should continue in sin. And in the second half of chapter 6, he says, here's the reason why. Because sin does three things in the life of a believer. He's writing to believers. Sin enslaves you. It makes you, it becomes your master. It rules over you. He said, you should no longer let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Sin will enslave you. It will make you ashamed. You'll start to hide and number three, it will spread death through your life. So for the believer, he says there in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, and we quote it, he says, the gift of God, or excuse me, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life. Now we quote that as a, as a passage to lead non-believers to salvation, but Paul here is writing to believers. He says, what we earn the wages that we earn from living a lifestyle of sin or from even dabbling in sin, it will lead forth to death in your life. But the gift of God, will trust in Him and receive it, is everlasting life. So to continue in sin means to basically, you know, throw off the gift God's given us and to just revel back in the mud where we came from. And the Lord has better for us. And so in chapter 7, he continues... After talking about the fact that sin will enslave us, it will make us ashamed, and it will spread death in our lives, you know, the, the question really is, as a believer, what's my relationship supposed to be towards sin? And his answer is, don't continue in it. Okay, so then there becomes this even bigger question. As a Christian, if I've been forgiven completely, and if I've been freed from sin, and I'm no longer to be dwelling in it or abiding in it, I'm supposed to abide in Christ, then how am I supposed to get rid of this sinful behavior? How am I supposed to put away the deeds of the flesh and pick up 
the life of the Spirit. Because I still struggle with sin. The question is, as a Christian, can we still sin? So I will answer to you, yes, we can. And no, we should not. Can we still sin? Yes, but no. It's, it's both. Because we do still have the ability to sin, but we should not. And so how do we deal with that? How do we get rid of this sinful behavior? How do we get rid of these sinful tendencies? How do we protect ourselves from a lifestyle of sin? And that's a question that I think I've been asked by every new Christian. And it's a question we should daily be asking. How do I stop this? I'm still struggling with it. Well, number one, don't be condemned because the idea is that if you are struggling with it, that's a sign of life. When a baby is born and comes out of mom, however she comes out or he, there's screaming that goes on because they're, they're striving, they're struggling to live. Breathing on their own for the first time. Keep, keeping themselves warm for the first time. That's a sign of life. If there's no crying, if there's no strife going on, the doctors get worried and they start bringing in the special teams. So if you're struggling against sin, that's good. Where there's struggle, there's life. But if you're not struggling against sin, red flag, you may not be alive in Christ. You're just giving in to sin all the time. So how do we deal with sin as believers? That's the question. Because he knows the tendency is, okay, so if I'm not supposed to just live in you know, the fast lane and continue in sin, then there needs to be an, a knee-jerk opposite reaction. So the opposite reaction that often happens is, I'll just come up with a bunch of rules. That's what, that'll help me. If I make 10 rules of these are the things that you can't do, then it'll be fixed. All of a sudden, life will be easy. I'll follow all these laws and I'll be good in God's sight. But that's legalism. See, either extreme is not good. Life just giving over to yourself to the flesh or life giving yourself over to make sure you follow all the rules. But God has a better way because that's what the Pharisees did. They had the Ten Commandments. They had the Mosaic Law. All of those, you know, from Leviticus and in Numbers and Deuteronomy, all of those laws that God gave His people to be holy as He is holy... <coughs> They didn't perfect them. All they did was they kept showing them how bad they really were. If you go out on the road, on highway, uh, is this 21 out here, and you're driving down the road and you go the speed limit, do you get a pat on the back? No. No. You, you get not a ticket. You don't get a ticket, right? But if you break the law, what happens? If you get caught, you get a ticket. You've broken the law. But the law doesn't ever say, hey, good job, you followed the rules today. It doesn't. It says, it only points out when you screw up. So living according to the law will never make you feel good about it. If anything, it's what you're supposed to do. That's what God says. So finally in the passage, Romans 7, he says, do you not know, brethren? And he says, for I speak to those who know the law. That the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. He's going to give an example of that in verse 2. But before we get there, I want to talk about this for a minute. Because in Romans chapter either 5 or 6, he has said that sin shall no longer have dominion over you. Whatever has dominion over you, it controls you. Well, it says here in verse 1, he says, if you don't know, here's something you should know. That the law has dominion, 
It has control over you as long as you live. He says in there, interesting phrase, in my version it says, for I speak to those who know the law. Now, how many of us in here know the law? Anybody? Well, if we've read it, we probably have an idea of what it says, but many of us don't have it memorized, right? We have an idea. So, we know the Mosaic Law. There's the Ten Commandments. Many of us know those and can quote some of them. Most of us can't probably quote all of them. I don't know that I could quote all of them right now. And I'm supposed to know this, right? But there's this other law that constrains us. And it's kind of a, 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 a law of the conscience. Have you ever seen something happen or, or been a witness to something and you know, you just watch it from the outside, you're like, well, that's not fair. Have you ever heard that phrase or thought that phrase or said it? That's not fair. Little kids from a young age, they'll say that. Well, that's not fair, mom. So-and-so gets to do this and I don't. It kind of points to the fact that in our being, there's this idea of right and wrong. It's the conscience. It's this law that we live by. You know, when I was growing up, one of the things my dad always said was, there's nothing worse than a liar. You know? And, well, according to him, there's nothing worse than a liar. Well, what about a murderer? (laughs) Is that worse? You know, we kind of have our own, you know, the way we look at, you know, sins, we kind of measure them up. Well, this is worse than that sin, and that sin's not so bad, you know? But we have this law in our hearts and we have these rules by which we live our lives and then we judge everyone around us, whether we realize that or not, according to our own law. And so we say, well, you know, I I don't cuss, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls that do. That makes me good, right? Well, the reality is, not necessarily. That makes you good in your own eyes, but what about God? Isn't he the one that we're supposed to be living in front of? What makes us righteous before him? And so we've talked about, and we talked about it in Romans 4, we talked about it in Romans 5, where it says, therefore by the deeds of the law, by the living out of the commandments that God's given us, no flesh, no person will be justified in God's sight. So we can't earn it, we already know that. But we also can't make up rules on our own and earn it. He says we've been free from sin, And he's going to tell us here that we've been freed from the dominion of the law. Even the law that we've kind of come up with on our own. So in verse 2, he gives an example of this. He talks about a woman who's been married. And this is something that across most cultures that you can relate to this. He says in verse 2 of chapter 7, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. And we recite this in our vows. Till death do us part. Now, I don't think really a lot of people pay attention to that one. That's kind of a biggie. You know, it's not till you cook the eggs wrong. It's not until, you know, I don't want to anymore. It's till death do us part. I mean, that's kind of a final, you know, you're kind of gambling there if you're planning on marrying somebody else. You know, at, well, you know, what if they live longer than I do? Then I don't, you know. So anyway, you kind of close off your options at that point. So he says, you know, the law says... That as long as he's alive, she's bound to her husband. Verse 3. Excuse me. Verse 2. I didn't finish it. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then, verse 3. If, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she's married another man. 
So Paul kind of, you know, he, he kind of argues with himself. On, he's like trying to say every little minute detail. But we get the idea. If a woman is married, and she's married to a man, and he's still alive, she can't remarry. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you're confused because you're like, well, a lot of those guys, like, they married tons of wives. So what? that doesn't mean it's good. That doesn't mean it's God's best. It means that that's what sinful man does. They multiply wives. But this passage is not about that. See, he's giving a parable. A parable is something where they cast a story alongside a biblical truth in order to illustrate it. So in this story, he's saying that a woman, when she gets married, she's married to that husband. And if anybody's been married before, that means you share in that other person's lifestyle. Now, there are many couples today that are married and they don't share in each other's lifestyle. They're not really married. I mean, they are married, but they're not. The idea is that two become one flesh. Jesus said that, and he was quoting from the book of Genesis. A man shall leave his family and cleave to his wife. They become one. They're knitted together by the Lord. And we don't see that because they're still two individual people, but God has spiritually put them together. And so if they're spiritually put together like that, and until he dies, she can't remarry. And so Paul's talking about this, and he's describing a truth Verse 3, did I already read that? Yeah. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she's called an adulteress. And we know this because it's very prevalent in our society what adultery is. Somebody goes out on their husband, goes out on their wife, and connects with another human being that's not their own spouse, then there's this, this problem, right? They've broken the contract, but they're still married. So he says if they marry another then they've committed adultery. Now, what do we know about this? Jesus has said, you know, it does, it's not so much marrying another, it's not so much even committing adultery, it's lusting after another, another spouse or another person that's not your spouse. But the point that he's making, he says, verse four, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. So in this parable, the woman is the Christian. The woman is the church. The woman is the Christian, okay? So before you were married to Christ, you were married, whether you realize it or not, to the first Adam. You shared in his nature. You shared in his fleshly desires. You shared in his rebellion against God. You were married to Adam. All of his sin, all of his rejecting God's command, you were, that, that's you. You're his descendant. Everything that he had to give you, sin and death. Remember I talked about that a couple weeks ago. That's our inheritance from Adam, sin and death. But that sinful nature, if you're a Christian, was put to death in Jesus in that Jesus was a descendant of Adam through the seed of the woman, Mary, who was a virgin. And Jesus was begotten of the Holy Spirit, fully man, a descendant of man, a descendant of Adam, and fully God, because there was that divine union between Mary and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was not only fully man, but also fully God. But that man side of him was put to death on the cross when the sins of the world were put on Jesus. So when he died, we died to sin. That old nature put to death, a timeless act that happened even for you and I on an individual basis 
that we choose to receive it. We say, Lord, what I've done with my life is a joke. It's only leading forth to death. The only way to life is to receive you. I've been given Christ as the payment, the propitiation, the Bible says, for my sins. And so now I am clothed in Jesus Christ. Not the Christ that was put to death on the cross, the old man, but the divine nature that was risen from the dead. And he's going to go on to say that in Romans chapter 7. In chapter uh, 7 verse 4 he says, My brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Now, back up there in uh, chapter 6 verse 21, he said, What fruit did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed. That was what sin brought. But now back here down in verse 4, he says you've been raised with him who was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. No longer fruit that brings forth death, but fruit that bears fruit to God. For when, verse 5, we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we've been delivered from the law. We've been delivered, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. You and I have the opportunity, because we've been set free from sin and the power of sin, we no longer have to do what it tells us, because we've been given a new nature. God doesn't put new tires on an old vehicle. He doesn't soup up the engine in an old car that's been sitting in a junkyard. What he does is he makes a completely new car. Now, the crazy thing is, is that he does this within the shell of what looks like an old car. He doesn't change. You can't tell. When someone gets saved, you cannot tell from their outward appearance that they've been <coughs> saved, that they're a new believer. You can't tell. Now, they might have some joy. They might have some peace. But those are all outward expressions that come through our emotions, through our being. But we still carry the same tint, this body of flesh that is prone to sin. So when God builds the kingdom, his kingdom, he doesn't do it the way that you and I would do. He doesn't take us and put a new exterior on us. He puts a new interior on us. He redeems us from the inside out. Though our outward man is perishing, Paul says, we've been given this glory within. And so, it renews day by day as we trust and as we abide in the Lord. If you look at John chapter 15, Jesus says there, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So, to illustrate this, I want to turn uh, to 1 John chapter 2. He says in verse 6, and I'm not reading 1 John yet. Go ahead and keep turning there. I just want to reiterate what he said in Romans 7 verse 6. He said, we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We should serve God, not because we have to, but because we recognize that he's first loved us. And so we, in response, we love what he wants us to do. So in 1 John chapter 2, John there writes this. Now remember that John is what we would call, and many have referred to as the apostle of love. 
We don't love God because we have to anymore. We love Him because He's first loved us. And so we get to serve Him out of love rather than out of a speed limit sign, if that makes any sense. You know, uh, nowadays, when I'm driving down the road, I don't follow the speed limit because I have to. I follow it because I love the Lord and I want to be a good example. I also follow the speed limit because I love my family and I don't want them to die in the car because I was being dumb, if that makes any sense. So in 1 John chapter 2, here's what it says in verse 1. He says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now remember the context of the passage in Romans 7 is since they're not <laughs> supposed to continue in sin anymore, how do they deal with it? Well, the first response of the human being is to go, I'll come up with a checklist of all do's and don'ts. But he says here, I write to you so that you may not sin. So he might be getting ready to tell us how we can avoid living a lifestyle or dabbling in sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the payment for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Kind of heavy words, right? But whoever keeps his word, truly, notice this, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him, because he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walks. This makes me think of a story. To be in Christ. Think of shepherds. Anybody know a shepherd that has some sheep? There are times where there are sheep that are born. And when they're born, uh, they die. They don't make it. And so what the shepherd does in order to make sure that that sheep or that, uh, that mama, usually there's ones that, that do have sheep and then they're able to feed the baby sheep. Well, when there's a one where the baby dies, well, wait a minute, I'm getting the story mixed up. should have written this down. Basically, sometimes the mama dies and the sheep lives. And so then you have this question, how do we feed this sheep? Because it was obviously born to a mama. Well, nowadays we have, for humans, we have this foster system. And many times there are people that live that are close to the family and say, hey, we'll take the kid, you know. But sometimes with sheep, it's not that simple because they'll go over and sniff the sheep, the little baby sheep that comes to them, and it doesn't smell like theirs. And they go, that's not mine. And they'll kick them away when they try to eat. So what they do is they take the sheep that died. See, this is where I'm getting it mixed up. Maybe I shouldn't tell this story. But what they do is if there's a little sheep that dies, but the mama's still alive, and then they have a mama that died, but a sheep that's alive. Does that make more sense now? Okay. That sheep, what they do is they take the sheep that died, and it's going to sound mean, but it's for good. They skin that sheep. They take the fleece and all the hair and all the skin and they lay it on the sheep that lived. And then they take that sheep to the mama that lost its baby and it smells that sheep and it goes, this is mine, and starts to feed it. God is a loving father who when we come to him covered 
and the body and the blood of Christ were in him, he feeds us. He takes care of us. He looks down on us and he sees his son. And so because he loves us, now obviously he knows that we're not Jesus. But he looks down and he sees the sinless and the righteous life. And he loves us because he loves us. He just chooses to. He sees his son. He's pleased with us. Verse 7 in chapter 2 of First John, he says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. He says, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. And I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. He gives all these examples of relationships with God. And then he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all the ways that the enemy comes at us, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God will abide forever. He says, you know, you want the cure for worldliness. You want to overcome and no longer have a taste for sin. He basically says, fall in love with the Lord. Recognize, dwell on, meditate on how much God has done for you. And you won't have to come up with rules. You won't have to come up with laws. You won't have to make a checklist of do's and don'ts. Because you'll want to serve the Lord in purity because of the love that he's already shown you. It'll be an overflow. And I love that because we, what we want to do is we want to overcome sin by coming up with rules that make us feel better because we're following them. But the reality is, is that when we live by the law, it makes us defensive because we're living by it. We're trying to prove ourselves to God. It also, many people, if you've ever met someone that lives according to the law, it makes us start to be self-righteous. We no longer say, hey, God's done it all. We start to go, hey, because I did this, this, and this, that's why God's blessed me. It also makes us critical of others. Because we have this own law that we've come up with in our minds and we follow it. And when other people don't do it, we point it out in them. Because that's what the law does. It condemns. It tells you, hey, you screwed up. And when you're doing that to yourself all the time, rather than preaching grace to yourself all the time, recognizing that you don't deserve any of God's richness and His blessings, when you tell that to yourself all the time, that's what you're going to tell others. But if you're legalistic and trying to prove yourself, trying to earn your salvation you're going to point out your own flaws in other people because that's what you're the best at seeing. And what living by the law also does is it makes us proud of our own record. We keep a record of how good we're doing. 
And then you become bored. Then you become dull because your life becomes about what you don't do rather than what you do do. And then you become dull. You become one of those, you know, you're not a Christian. You're, you're just a not worldling. You're, you're a, you don't live in the flesh. And Christianity is about what we do. And then you become discouraged because you'll have bad days because you can't follow all the rules you came up with. It's like, for example, Kelly and I have gone through different sections in our marriage where I've kept the books, the finances, and then there's times where she keeps them. And just recently, she keeps them. And she does a wonderful job, way better than I ever did. But the funny thing is, is when I kept the books, I wanted receipts for the things we use our card for. Now, the only thing we use our card for is to get gas, our debit card. That's it. The rest of it's cash. So I'd say, hey, you got gas, because I would see it on the, the ledger or on the online internets, the, the bank thing. And I'd say, I need your receipt. And she'd say, oh, I forgot again. Sorry. And I'd get so upset. Well, when she took the books over, my standard was still the same. I need to give her a receipt. Now, how many th times do you think I've really done good at that? Hardly any. You see, the law that I came up with was to always give the receipt. But when I had to live that law myself, <coughs> I didn't do it. So we come up with our own standards and say, this is what it's right to do it right. And then we don't live by it. So Jesus is saying, don't come up with a law. Just love me. Now, there are times where my wife is very lovingly saying, give me the receipt. I want to make sure the money's in there that's supposed to be. I want to make sure that they didn't overcharge us. So it discourages us because we don't always have good days. But the only way to not be discouraged is to recognize that Jesus has already done it all, to rest in that, and to be obedient to his commands, not because we have to, but because we get to, to please him. So the law is good for what the purpose it is, and we're going to look at that next week. I won't go into that this week. The purpose of the law was never to justify man. The purpose of the law was to be a spotlight on the heart of every human being to show them that they don't measure up to God's standard. It's supposed to spotlight your heart, not to make you feel condemned, but to convict you of your sin and say, Lord, I need a Savior. I can't live according to your righteousness. I need you to provide for me some sort of payment that will turn away the wrath that I righteously deserve. And so that's the purpose of the law. The law cannot deliver you from sin. And that's his main point today. Our knee-jerk reaction to say, okay, we can't live in sin anymore. How do I deal with it? Is to come up with a list of rules. And what Paul says to these believers is, you can't make enough rules. You can't dictate your heart. Your heart has to be changed. It has to be made new. It has to serve God out of an abundance of his love. And so may you... If you're stuck in this, I was reading this passage this week and really I'm teaching it to me because I am legalistic by nature. I still have a propensity to sin. And my first reaction is always to go, well, if I come up with this rule, the next time I won't sin. But then I do anyway. And the Lord says, you can't do it on your own. You need me. And I've made you that way because God is not trying to make us more independent. We all want to be independent. We want to grow up. And God says, if you want to grow in maturity in your relationship with me, that means you need to become more and more dependent. What did John the Baptist say? He said, he must increase and I must decrease. So let me ask you this morning, are you trusting in him or are you coming up with your own rules to follow? 
because that way is going to go to failure. Trust in Him and you will always eat everlasting life. It's all you can have. That's the gift of God. Can't earn it. Can't do it on your own. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that on my best day, that you've shown me that my righteousness is as filthy rags. And thank you that on my worst day, that my sin, the worst of it, is not so bad that you can't forgive it, that your blood couldn't pay for the, the wrath that I deserve. Thank you for knowing all of my needs and providing for them in Christ. Lord, help us to just recognize how much that you first loved us. Help us to meditate on the riches of your glory, on the, the wonderfulness, the completeness of your love for us. And as we recognize how much you've loved us, Lord, help us to respond in worship, whether it's, whether it's with our, the praises of our lips, whether it's with the testimony like Sherry stared, shared this morning. Lord, help us just to worship you with our lives. And as a result of that worship, Lord, may other sinners just like us be led to salvation in Jesus. So Father, thank you for this word from Paul. May it ruminate, may it soak into our hearts this week as we meditate on your word. And Lord, may you change us. Remove the legal, legalistic side of us. And Lord, help us to be fully enraptured and married to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.